Well, good morning again to you here. Thank you for coming on this uh, Labor Day um, weekend. A lot of people are not laboring but recreating as, as uh, was prayed. Um, I'm especially concerned about uh, Houston because we used to live there. We were the first church I pastored for nine years was in Houston, Texas. We experienced one hurricane while I was there. And uh, I think they, we said we had 25 inches of water, but this one more than doubled that. I can't imagine. It was so bad back then. And now to think it's uh, what's going on there. But uh, if you've watched the news, um, one of the things that's just delightful to see is how many people stepped up have stepped up to help, especially, um, I don't know if they'll give the credit, but how many churches um, are just mobilized to, to help people in need uh, down there, and that's always so, so good to see. Uh, since it's uh, Labor Day weekend, I thought we'd uh, focus uh, today on labor, and I hope this is not you in that picture there. Somebody's angry um, with work, but uh, they, the, uh, I saw a poll came on my um, news feed last week, and it said more than 50% of Americans hate their jobs. So maybe that is you. I hope not. Um, they, uh, a Gallup poll some time ago said the number is something like 70%, um, which is uh, pretty bad. Um, it's uh, reflected in our um, acronyms. Here's one. Um, we say uh, TGIF. Let's see if we can get the slide to move on. I'm having trouble with my button. Oh, I've got it here. There we go. Um, that means TGI. What is F? Why? Work is over. Or we have this one. Hump day. What's that? Why? Oh, the work week is half over. Um, we um, have, I saw this one. My week is basically Monday, Monday 2, Monday 3, Monday 4, Friday, Saturday, and pre-Monday. Um, and we sing. Rainy days and... Mondays always get me down. Um, here's a, um, a comment. Someone says, work is simply a means to an end. The end is play. Or um, this one. I can't wait until I can retire and then really start my life. I want to say good luck to you. <laughs> this is Mark Twain. Let us be grateful to Adam, our benefactor. He cut us out of the blessing of idleness and won for us the curse of labor. This is Robert Frost. By working faithfully eight hours a day, you may eventually get to be a boss and work 12 hours a day. <laughs> what a blessing. Um, Herman Melville. They talk about the dignity of work. Bosh. The dignity is in the leisure. That is the mentality of many people. And here's another one. This was a woman's epitaph. Here lies a poor woman who always was tired. She lived in a house where help wasn't hired. The last words she said were, Dear friends, I am going where washing ain't wanted, nor sweeping or sewing. And everything there is exact to my wishes, for where folks don't eat, there's no washing of dishes. In heaven, loud anthem, anthems forever are ringing, but having no voice, I'll keep clear of the singing. Don't mourn for me now. Don't mourn for me never. I'm going to do nothing forever and ever. 
I'm sorry that I've got bad news for her because that's not quite what the Bible says, but that is people's mentality. So today on the Labor Day weekend, I would like to look at the subject of work, but not from the perspective of our culture, a culture that basically hates work, but rather from the perspective of Scripture and one particular person in Scripture, the most important by far, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at this picture here, you can see that uh, his face is cu has cutouts. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those, of course, are the four accounts of the life of Jesus. Written by Matthew, one of the disciples. Mark, uh, a follower of Jesus, but not a disciple, an eyewitness. Luke, uh, a physician, historian, and John, Jesus' best friend. Now, if you put the, their accounts together, it's called a harmony. Some of you may have them in your Bibles. Mine does. has a harmony. Because as you know, the, Bible is, the Gospels are not in strict chronological order. But you can take the various accounts and put them and get a chronological picture of the three years of Jesus' public ministry. If you do so, you'll be able to discern two full days in Jesus' life. One of the days we already commemorated with communion. That was the day in which Jesus died. We, knew, we know exactly what he did for all 24 hours of the last day of his life before his resurrection. But there's another day that most people don't know anything about. If you take the four Gospels together, you can get a day in the life of Jesus. Now, that's a, a, a very a fun, common genre. You have uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, or uh, the day that Kennedy died, or the day that Lincoln died. There, there's a whole group of books that focus on a day of someone's life. Today, we're going to look at a day in the life of Jesus. We're going to try to see what, uh, how, what Jesus was like at work. And when you do see this day, I think you will, with me, say, stunning. Jesus is stunning. You will not believe our Lord. Now, the day starts out very, very, very horrible. This particular day of Jesus' life, and it was probably about midway through his public ministry, maybe a little past that, closer to the end of his life, his day begins with some incredibly, incredibly bad news. He receives news the first thing in the morning that John the Baptist has been beheaded. That's how his day begins. As you know, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. They're, they're physically related. John the Baptist is the one who had baptized Jesus when Jesus was was shown to the crowds to be the Messiah. John the Baptist was one of the greatest people that had ever lived. Remember Jesus said himself, he said, of all those who are born of women, and that includes how many of us? How many of us have been born of women? Uh, yeah, last I knew every one of us. Of all those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. So that means from the time of Jesus in all of human history, John the Baptist is the greatest human being who has ever lived. He's the first prophet in the history of Israel for 400 years. That's a pretty special category. And John the Baptist, because he was an honest man, when he heard about an incestuous affair of the leader of that time, Herod Antipas, 
he called him out on it. And what did he get for doing the right thing? Got thrown into a dungeon, beheaded, and now Jesus' day begins with the news reaching Jesus that John the Baptist has been killed. On Herod's birthday, that's Herod Antipas, the daughter of Herodias, Salome, danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, now her mother is the one with whom Herod had the affair. Her mother, Herodias, was married to Herod's brother, who was away on a trip in Rome. So while the cat was away, the mouse was playing, and Herod's the one playing with her. And now they get married, and John the Baptist had the audacity to say, that is wrong, it's immoral. Well, of course, the king isn't going to take that lying down. He threw him in prison. So now her mother, or Salome, makes a, 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 a beautiful dance. And uh, Herod's so impressed by it, he said, hey, what do you want? His wife said, I hate, I hate, I hate that man who called us out on our relationship. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, in other words, public opinion, he ordered that her request be granted, and he had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. It's, it's the way Jesus began his day. And so what happened? John's disciples came and took his body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Now, we know where this took place. This took place in a place called Macarius, which is just a few miles from the part in the Jordan River where John was baptizing people. Herod Antipas had a fortress there and a palace, and that's where John was imprisoned in a dungeon, and that's where the party took place, and that's where John lost his head. And now the disciples of John the Baptist made about a three-day walk up to Galilee, and on this particular morning, they told Jesus the news. What a way to start a day. I remember reading this with my, my children and my grandchildren. Alexander and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Well, that's Jesus' day. That's how it starts off. It's a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. Now, it gets worse. Because Jesus is where he is because there is a warrant out for his arrest. And if they had pictures in the, in the post offices of that day, Jesus' mugshot would have been there because the word had gone out that they, Jesus was wanted and there were people that wanted him dead. And John the Baptist is one of the greatest people, and Jesus said the greatest person who had ever lived up to that time. Now, how, how would you face a day if the most important person in the world to you had just been killed. Or you have just been told that the best man or the maid of honor at your wedding has just been beheaded. Now what if you went to your boss and said, this horrible tragedy took place? What would your boss at work do? Say, oh please, take some time. Take some time away. Have you ever 
Have you ever, I've had to do this a number of times, have you ever had to go through a normal day of life because you didn't have any choice? You had to carry on your activities, but your heart was absolutely broken with grief. Who knows what it... That's what Jesus had. That's how he began his day. And now, something else happens. What happens next is on that same morning, Jesus' disciples, who are not with him when the disciples of John the Baptist come. See, because Jesus had sent his disciples out into the countryside to tell people about Jesus. He had sent them into the countryside to heal people's diseases. And on the very day he had just heard about John the Baptist's beheading, his disciples come back and tell him what wonderful things have taken place. Here it is. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Now, what had they done? Well, Jesus had just kicked the disciples out of the nest. That's what he had done. Because he was in the business of trying to train the disciples because they were going to carry on his ministry. He kicked them out of the nest. And when the bird got kicked out of the nest, what's it going to do? It's going to flap its wings. And guess what? It's going to fly. And it's going to get to the ground and go, I did it! And so now the disciples are coming to Jesus and said, Jesus, you can't believe what happened. We went out there into the crowds. We don't know how to speak. We're not trained orators. We went out there and people are listening to us. And Jesus, we went out we saw people who had demons in them. And we prayed to God and the demons left them. Jesus, we went out there and people were sick. They came to us and we saw God heal them. Jesus, this is great. Now remember Jesus. He's just heard that his cousin was beheaded. And now his disciples come and tell Jesus about all these great things they've just experienced. Have you ever had a day like that? Um, what would you do if you were in Jesus' shoes or in his sandals? On the one hand, your heart is absolutely broken. On the other hand, your disciples are pumped. And you've got to deal with both of those. So what would you do? Well, I suspect if that was you, you'd do exactly what Jesus did. Jesus said, disciples, we've got to get away. And we've got to talk. Because I, I want to hear what God did through you. But I want to share with you what happened to my man, John. And so Jesus gets away with his disciples. Sounds pretty good. The shepherd now takes his sheep and debriefs with them and tells them about his grief. And here's what the Bible says. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So that's what they did. Jesus knew that they had to get away, so he said, let's get in a boat, because if we stay with the people here, they won't let us get away. They got in a boat, and they went across to the other side of the lake. Now, this is the Sea of Galilee, um, and most of Jesus' ministry took place on the northern shore, the, the upper part of this uh, lake. 
We're going to see the town Bethsaida come up in our narrative today, and also Magdala around that area. Magdala, that's the home of Mary Mag of Magdala, Mary Magdalene. Now, if you look at Magdala on that map, and you look at Bethsaida up in the north, uh, the the, the north um, east corner there, that's about eight miles. That's how far it is. So it's a big lake. It's quite a distance. And uh, we're going to see what happens now. Jesus has just heard this incredibly horrible news. He's now listening to this incredibly good news, and he says to his disciples, let's get away in a boat because we need to go on a retreat because we got to talk. Well, let's see what happens next. He's not going to get away. Here's what happens next. But many who saw them leaving, leaving in a boat. Many who saw them leaving in a boat recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Now, <laughs> what if that was you? Okay, your heart is broken because you just received word of the beheading of your cousin, and your disciples have just returned, and they are giving you incredibly news of how God has worked through their lives. And you decide to get away with your disciples and go on a retreat where no one can bug you. And now they're a bunch of people. What would you do? Well, he could get back on the boat and say, hey, we're not going here. Let's go somewhere else. He could have done that. He could have gotten off the boat and say, get lost. He could have done that. I mean, it would, wouldn't it have been legit? That would have even been good. Hey, guys, it's been a bad day. Would you please leave? Or he could have just um, had someone write in Hebrew real fast. Um, closed. Office closed today. After all, this is Labor Day weekend. He could have done that. He could have said to, his, to the to crowds, Hey, crowds, um, I, I, I'm out on retreat right now. You don't bug us when we're out. I'm with my guys. He didn't do that. You want to know what he did? Here's what he did. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he was ticked. No, no. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. That's what he did. Now, when you put all the Gospels together, you can see that he did five things. The first thing he did is, with his eyes, he saw them. And when he saw these people, he didn't see a bunch of people bugging him on a day when he wanted to get away. He saw people as sheep that don't have a shepherd. And then his gut, because the word compassion means Something goes on in your gut. His gut was not rumbling with anger. His gut was full of compassion. And then what did he do? His face, one of the Gospels tells us, he welcomed them. Can you imagine if you were Jesus and you just wanted to get away and your face goes, okay, if i got to do it, I'm going to do it, but I hate this. You people are ruining my day. I was going to get away with my disciples. My heart's broken. Jesus, no, his face is saying, come on, folks, come. Come. And by the way, do you know how many folks it's going to be? 
we're going to see that the number of people who he's now going to be around is more than 5,000 people. That's a good portion of the whole population of Sheridan, Wyoming. And it might have been almost as big as this whole population. And then his words. He spoke to them, the Bible tells us, about the kingdom of God. And then he heals them of many diseases. And remember Jesus? He said, this is my job. The Son of Man did not come to this earth to be served. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, believe it or not, I can relate to this one here from my time in Africa. When I was 22 years old, I went to Africa to serve as a teacher. I was employed by the Swazi government. I taught high school. I arrived two days after the school had begun. I taught juniors and seniors in high school. So the night that I arrived and I had to go into the classroom the next day of teaching, I didn't know what I would be teaching. And so I asked, well, what will I teach? And they said, well, first they said, well, you'll be teaching biology. I said, oh, okay. I took biology in college. I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I'll try. And I said, is that it? They said, oh, no. You're going to be teaching African history to Africans. I didn't even know where the countries were. I knew nothing about African history. And I had to walk into a classroom and, and teach African history to Africans, and I didn't know anything. So I was desperate. I had to study. No, I didn't study. I crammed. But I had a problem. The problem was African culture. First of all, African people there were not time-oriented. They're event-oriented. The clock didn't mean anything to them. Moreover, they are extremely kind and warm people. And they're such good friends. And so they would come to my little house in the morning and spend all day. And they loved that because, and I, well, I didn't, I didn't like it. I loved those people, but I had to teach what am I supposed to do? They spent the whole day with me. I couldn't say, hey, get lost. I got to prepare. So my only thing I had to learn, I, I came up with a principle. I called it visibility availability. If they can see me, I'm available. But if they can't see me, I'm not available. So early in the morning before anyone awake, uh, was awakened, I snuck out of my house, found a room, and I locked the door. No one knew where I was. So that was my only hope of being able to study. So then I had enough time to study. I could do my lessons as a teacher. And then when they saw me, that was the rest of the day. We were with them for the rest of the day. But that's what Jesus was like. Here, if they could see him, he was on work. He was working. Now, if he could hide, he, they, he, wasn't, he was free to be himself, be by himself. But if they saw him, he served them. And so now... Jesus, whose heart is broken, whose disciples are elated, chooses to go away with them on a retreat. When they get to the retreat camp, Camp Bethel, the crowds are there. And what does Jesus do? He says, well, we're going to skip the retreat, and I'm going to minister to the crowds. Oh, the plot's going to get thicker. Watch what happens next. This is the very day that he feeds the 5,000 people. That's why I say we know the crowd. And some of the Bible's texts say 5,000 men. That means this could have been the population of Sheridan. 
So now he's not only got a few people there, he's got thousands of people because he's really popular. Can you imagine how popular someone would be if they came into Sheridan and they healed everybody in the whole town, emptied out the hospital? I mean, you'd be pretty popular. But he's going to be even more popular because now he's going to give away free food. <laughs> so here comes next. As evening approached, and remember, he's been teaching and healing and dealing with people all day long. Now it's evening. The disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. It's logical. And Jesus says, Oh, they don't need to go away. You feed them. <laughs> you see, can you imagine this huge crowd of people? Jesus says, oh, why don't you feed them? They go, Jesus, you're nuts. You're absolutely nuts. We don't have the resources to feed these people. Jesus said, do you have anything? He says, yeah. Some guy's got a sack lunch. Jesus said, well, bring the sack lunch. Let's see what you got. They bring him the sack lunch, and they're couple of fish and some bread. She said, oh, that'll do. He prays and he multiplies the food. And by the way, the Jewish people very much believed that when the Messiah came one day, he would come around Passover time and the Messiah would duplicate Moses' praying for the manna to come out of heaven. So now Jesus takes this little lunch and he multiplies it and feeds thousands of people. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who God promised would come into the world. They didn't quite get it right, but they're on the road. They realized that this was something incredibly special. But the day isn't even close to over yet. It's just beginning for Jesus. Now, what would you do if you're Jesus? You just fed 5,000 people, and he's been probably tugged and pulled and touched all day long. He's been teaching all day long. I think he'd say, hey, I'm, I'm going for a break. It's not what he does. Here's what he does. He's going to be alone at last, but before he does, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. He said, guys... You guys need some rest. Why don't you get in the boat and go to the other side of the lake? I'll meet you later. I'll dismiss the crowds. So Jesus dismisses the crowds. Now we're probably uh, 9 or 10 at night. And what is Jesus going to do? And leaving them, he went up to the mountainside to pray. I'd like to have heard this prayer. Who's he going to talk to? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are going to have a little conversation. This is one of the greatest human beings that's ever lived. All he did was right. He told this horrible, evil king the truth about his life. And what does he get? He loses his head. This is my cousin. What's going on? Is it really this bad down here? Are these people this evil that such an evil crime could occur? Maybe God said, you haven't seen nothing yet, Jesus. It's going to get worse. Can you imagine? 
Jesus is human as well as divine. He's, can you imagine his heart breaking over what happened to John? And so now the Bible tells us how long he's up there with his father on the mountainside. In the next passage, it's going to give us the time. It's going to call it the fourth watch of the night. That's between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So from maybe 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock, after Jesus has dismissed the crowds, he's up on the mountainside talking to God, praying his heart out. And then he had sent his disciples, remember, in the boat. And they were going to the other side of the lake. But they had encountered some rough weather, which was pretty common on the Sea of Galilee at various times. Now Jesus, was going, he said, I'll meet you. And Jesus ran out of time to meet them because he was talking to his father. So Jesus, unlike us, knew that the shortest distance between two points was a straight line, but the straight line happened to go across the water. So that's what he did. The Bible tells us that he intended to pass them by. He was just walking on top of the water as the storm was raging, and he sees his disciples. During the fourth watch of the night, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him, they thought he was a ghost. Well, of course you would. And said, and cried out in fear. Jesus immediately said to them, be, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. If it's you, Peter said, tell me to come out to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Oh, you little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? I'm sure he was very tender. So now Jesus, in the middle of the night, or now early morning, gets in the boat with his disciples, and he goes to the place where he had sent them. It's probably 6 a.m., and they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you're the Son of God. This is the first time the disciples ever used that phrase, Son of God. Well, they get in the boat, they go to the other side, and what happens next? The next morning, here we go again. When they, land, when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. Free food! This guy gives free food. And he heals. He's the greatest doctor the world's ever seen. That will collect a huge crowd. And it did. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Now who were these people who touched him? They're flakes. These are not good people. You see, the Bible tells us that most of these people are not even going to say thank you to Jesus. 90% of the people who were healed of leprosy never even thanked him. These are flakes. Some of these people may be the exact same people who are going to cry not long after this, crucify him. But Jesus didn't go through the crowd and say, well, I think you're a pretty good specimen. I'll take you. And, oh, no, you're a flake. He healed them all. That's what he did. Now, remember... This is the next morning. How long has he been up? 24 hours. Never stopped. And he's back at it again. Why? Because he's moved with compassion because he loves the people. 
So there's a day in the life of Jesus. John's disciples begin by bringing him bad news, and then his disciples come and bring him good news. So Jesus tries to get away with his disciples on a retreat. Didn't work very well because the crowds found him. Jesus ministers to the crowds, and then he feeds 5,000 people. He gets alone at last to spend time with the Father, walks on the water, meets up with his disciples, and starts all over again the next morning. That is our Lord. Stunning. Just stunning. Well, what do we learn? First of all, God is the one who created work. Work is not something that's evil. Work is a gift from God. Work precedes the fall. And bad news for the woman whose epitaph I read, work is going to continue in heaven. Work is good. It's not evil. It's a gift from God. God created work, and we are people who are, um, are, are, are designed by God to be his workers. That's what we do. We work. Not only... Can you flip that slide to the next one? I kind of got uh, stuck here. My button. Well, I'll go on then. We're made by God to work. If we are Christians, one of the things that we must realize is that worship is not simply what we do on Sunday morning at First Baptist Church. Worship is our life. And the major portion of our life we are going to spend working. So if your work is not your worship, you're missing out on the vast portion of your life. When we work, and remember, for, for many years of Jesus' life, he is in a carpenter shop chiseling or planing wood. And what's he doing while he's doing that? He's acknowledging the worth of God. For the vast majority of his life, his work is unknown to anyone but God alone. But what was he doing? He was worshiping God the whole time that he did that. We know because of sin, work is hard. It's frustrating and it's futile at times. But work and rest are not enemies. They're friends. They're both modeled by Jesus. One of the phrases that, uh, verses in the Bible in Luke says this, the, the, the multitudes were begging Jesus to heal them and to teach them, but he would often slip away to a quiet place to pray. Perfect balance of work and rest. He is incomparable. In 24 pressure-packed hours, Jesus didn't blow up or bail out. He consistently welcomed and served people. He maintained his closest to the Father, even at the cost of his own sleep. He made cool-headed decisions. He never stopped equipping his disciples. He is our God. A song I'd like to conclude with this morning, not singing, but saying, is a song by Graham Kendrick. Maybe you've sung it here before called Meekness and Majesty. Listen to these words. This is Jesus. Meekness, majesty, manhood, and deity in perfect harmony. The man who is God. The Lord of eternity dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. He's the Father's pure radiance, perfect in innocence, yet learns obedience by death on a cross. He suffers to give us life. He conquers through sacrifice. And as they crucify him, he cries, Father, forgive. He's the epitome of worship, of, of wisdom unsearchable. 
He's God the invisible. His love is indestructible, though it appears in frailty. He's the Lord of eternity, stooping so tenderly, lifts our humanity to the heights of his throne. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is our God. The picture I wanted to paint for you today is simply a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ at work. And when you see the portrait of Jesus, the only thing we can do is bow down and worship, for this is our God. Let's pray. What a mighty God we serve. Oh, Father, forgive us for how we depict Jesus as a wimp with um, shampooed hair and little sweet little hands. He's tough. He's strong. He's full of compassion. He, he's so, so able and so human, so divine. So worship-worthy. He's the Son of God. He's our Savior and our coming King. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me. As, I, as a benediction today, may I offer my favorite verse in the Bible. It's from John chapter 1. The Word of God became flesh and lived among us. And we have seen His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is our God. And we are to live lives of worship. Have a marvelous Labor Day as you worship the King of all work, our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you.